You know what they say. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Don't rock the boat. Don't mess with the flow, stick to the status quo. And it's hard not to follow that advice. Quitting your steady day job to chase after freelance work is terrifying. Making art that exposes gender issues is not very popular. And choosing to stand out from the crowd? Yeah, that usually doesn't end very well. If we were passive about our futures and always did the same thing for the rest of our lives, the same job, the same town, the same ideas, there would be a lot less conflict. And a lot less good art. My name's Laura Brinkat, and on this episode of Poor Tours, I talk to a woman who is anything but passive in her pursuit to be both a director and an editor, and in starting a movement to help women directors in their careers. My name is Brooke Siebold, and I'm an editor and a director. I feel like so the films that resonate the most with me, I would say, are probably small indie dramas. I'm really sort of drawn to really small stories where, I don't know, a lot, a lot happens emotionally, or you know, you're taken along, but it isn't necessarily sort of, it isn't necessarily such a large scale. Like it can be something super small. And I, the first example that comes into my head is like Wendy and Lucy, where she loses her dog, or like just something that's like you're really getting a sense of human behavior, but it doesn't have to be on such a grand sweeping scale. And I guess I, I gravitate towards those films because those are the films that seem maybe possible for me to make. <laughs> Whereas Titanic and much larger sort of like, you know, huge studio films feel very, very far away. But that said, I have so much respect. I just saw Mad Max and I thought it was like the most incredible thing ever. Like the craft in that is just unreal and exceptional. But in terms of, you know, like human behavior and character development and whatnot, I don't know, I tend to go to sort of smaller indie films for that kind of fare, I suppose. There's also something so impressive by seeing what people are able to do for, with little resources, you know what I mean? Like there is something really exciting when you go to a film that was made for $30,000 or $50,000 and you're just like, oh my God, look at what that filmmaker was able to do. As opposed to, oh yeah, Sony put $25 million into that, so it should look pretty damn good, you know? So I don't know, there's something I just get like excited about the craft and what people are able to do for small amounts of money. So there's like also this idea of when you're limited, you have to be really, really creative. And you have to be sort of creative in like how you're showing your characters, what your characters are doing. Like everything becomes sort of a choice as to how, how you, I don't know, how you, how you get the audience to understand what it is that you're trying to do with you know, such little means and such little sort of, yeah. That was, that was a trailing off sentence. You're not gonna be able to edit that sentence. Sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> she was right. I had the good fortune of meeting Brooke when I was working for Joe and Alex, the two guys who snuck into the concert for footage. She was hired to edit the first episode of the Penny Black series, so I actually got to see her work as an editor and the many, many, many cuts of the pilot. Our time together was very short though, and I wanted to know more about her and her job, like what was her origin story? Oh, my origin story, okay, well it's a good one. Um, so when I was 12, I got into like a really crazy skiing accident and I spent about a year in bed. You know, I had like a broken leg and I had like pretty serious internal injuries or whatnot. And so I spent a long time just watching movies in bed. In fact, like my entire life was basically just sort of living through every movie that I watched. And you know, Blockbuster knew my dad by name and, and you know, we rented out the entire store and I just like sort of like consumed and sucked in everything I could see and watch and sort of study. 
But um, but I didn't even like comprehend that you could become a filmmaker. I didn't even. I don't know why. Like I don't know why that was just the furthest thing from my mind. It never led me to. Oh my god, I love films so much. I should do that. It was just like. Oh my god, I love films so much. All I want to do is watch them. And then when I got to college, there were a few films that came out right around the same time. It was Boys Don't Cry and High Art and But I'm a Cheerleader. I think there were a couple of more too. Monster came out, and it was just sort of like kind of like changed the way I saw the world in the sense that um, I don't know there were filmmakers out there that were a women and b telling the stories that I actually wanted to tell and and so it kind of made me realize that there could be space for me actually to be making content and not just sort of consuming it and those were the movies that I saw and kind of knew from then on that I wanted to be a filmmaker and abandoned everything else actually that skiing accident for a long time made me think I wanted to be a doctor and then um, when I got to college and started sort of seeing those films and realizing, oh, okay, actually, I think I just really liked the show ER and I'd want to work on it. And <laughs> I really like these movies and I want to direct it. That's what I want to do. And then editing came a little bit later. Like that was after I realized I wanted to be a filmmaker and you know I started taking classes, trying to educate myself. And then my favorite part of the process was always in the edit room and sort of fixing all of the things that I had screwed up on set and just the freedom that you have to completely sort of reimagine your story. So that was really, really exciting for me. And then I started, right out of college, I started working at a documentary production company where I was assistant editing. And I totally fell in love with, with that entire process. I think that was the first time where I really saw what an editor is capable of, especially in the documentary world where you know the editor is really sort of constructing the story and working with the director to really sort of build something from nothing, from hundreds of hours of footage that isn't really organized or, you know, compiled in a compelling way at all and the editor was really the one that was pulling all those pieces together and really like building a case and telling a story and making you feel something and yeah and I think it was watching my editing mentor at that production company made me realize I could absolutely do this and this could be really fulfilling so between those two things then it became like okay well I'll always be a starving artist who will be trying to make my films on the side and in the meantime I'll cut other people's work and for me that's been amazing because it's been how so much of my directing education has actually been through working closely with directors as I cut their films and then you can really see when you're editing oh okay like I'm missing this shot or oh the director should have done this or oh these two shots are never going to cut together because of the angles or whatever it is and you can start to actually you know edit these things in your head so that when I'm directing and I'm on my set and I could really sort of figure out you know what the scene is supposed to look like and when we have to cut a scene it's very cut a shot it's very easy to just sort of be like, oh, okay, well, if we cut that one, it'll still cut together to be fine. So like all of my editing experience has actually been super useful in terms of becoming a better director too. And I think that's a thing. I, I think that there are a lot of directors who got their start editing because of that exact reason and sort of like, you know, just kept, kept going with it and started directing in TV or whatnot and yeah. Since she is a director herself, I was curious about her process of working with other directors on projects as an editor. It's really interesting because it's so drastically different for every single project and now I've been editing for a long time so I've done, you know, I've done indie features, I've done like indie shorts, I've done doc features, I've done lots of doc, nonfiction stuff for television, I've done commercials, music videos, like pretty much everything. So it's, it varies so much based on who I'm working with and what their work process is and also just in terms of like what the project is in terms of, you know, if it's a documentary Hopefully there are transcripts that I could start to work from. And then with the director, I'll usually like sit down and we'll make a paper edit together and then I'll build that and we'll start working from that. With narrative, I kind of 
just really take as much time as I possibly can just going through the footage and making all of my own notes. And sometimes like, some, sometimes I, I won't even look at the script. Like I'll just sort of try to assemble the film based on what I'm understanding from the footage itself. Um, sometimes directors have really strong ideas about what, you know, the vision that they have for the film and based on, you know, what kind of footage they were able to collect on set and they'll tell me really specifically, these are the takes that I really like, this is what I really loved about it, you know, stay away from this character, the performances weren't great. But other times it's like, you know, a director can be just like so in it and by the time they get to me, they hate their footage so much, like they're so over it and so much of my job is actually being like, no, 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 wait. But you know that thing you were telling me about that you wanted to do, like I totally see it in these shots. Like we can do this, this, and this. And so then it really becomes about like inspiring the director again and making him or her like remember what it was that they loved about this story to begin with. So it really totally differs based on based on the person, you know, and based on the relationship too. Because some people are really wanting to sit next to me and wanting to watch every edit and discuss them, and other people are just sort of like, no, send me your cut. And then you know I'll get back to you with some notes, and then you can work on those. And so it really totally depends on how that director likes to work. Do you have a preference on which director on like how they like to work? I, I kind of like all of it. Like there's something I guess that the one thing that I really don't like is when it becomes a relationship where the director's sitting next to you and you're just sort of pushing buttons and enacting you know what it is that they're saying. But when it's not like that, when the director's sitting next to you and it's real conversations about, no, what will work best? Can we try it this way? Let's look at this way. And you're really like evaluating it together. That's really awesome and wonderful. But then also, like if, you know, if a director just sort of sends over notes, and you know, Joe is a perfect example where you know, he was wonderful and involved in everything, but he was a little hands off in the sense that he really gave me the freedom to sort of come up and find my own solutions. And that was so great about that job was that like, it put a lot of ownership on me to fix the problem, and then like, it made me rise to that level, as opposed to some directors are very micromanaging and they sort of tell you every single cut, and then when it's not working, it's sort of like, it's a limiting, it's a limiting relationship because I can only do so much because I'm not really given the freedom to actually like come up with my own solutions to the problems. So I'm always like seeking those jobs, and I'll, and you know, when it, when you meet with a director, you can really feel it too, like whether or not that connection is gonna be like inspired and exciting and, and they're gonna to listen to you and, and, and I'm gonna be able to add something really meaningful to the project or if I'm gonna get hired for a job and I, I know that it's like so far outside of what I want to do or you know if it's a job I just have to take for money or something and I know that it's not gonna be creatively fulfilling in any way, shape or form and just like having to deal with that fact too and having to be that button pusher and, and yeah, that, that kind of sucks, but it's it happens, especially with commercials and sizzle reels and that kind of stuff. It's sort of like a, but you know, you do it. <laughs> so yeah, as an editor, you're splicing footage together and like with narratives, you're following a script. How can you as an editor put in your creative input? Isn't it like already says, like this is a script, just follow it, get coverage on this character and then this character. How can you be creative as an editor? Yeah, you would think it would be really simple. You would think it's like, oh yeah, I've got these close-ups and these medium shots, and oh, I'll just cut them together. But really, it's so much more than that because, you know, even if you have a scene and you've got close-ups and medium shots and wide shots, you could play that entire scene out in a close-up on, you know, an irrelevant character even that means nothing in the scene, and that would probably not be a super compelling choice. But there's so many different ways that you can manipulate that footage, and I mean, you can also be cutting dot. You can also be rearranging the scene so that you're cutting around bad performances or cutting out characters entirely or geographically. Something either isn't making sense or there's an entire 
section of the scene that's just really boring and is expository and isn't doing anything. So we'll you know, cut out like an entire chunk of the scene and then the geography doesn't make sense at all. And as the editor, you kind of have to figure out, okay, well, how do I make it so that your eye, you know, so that you're following the story and that you're not worried about like the bad continuity just because, you know, we cut out seven lines of dialogue or something. So there's like, even if it is just a basic table scene between two characters, there are just a million different ways that you can go about doing it. And the funny thing is, is no one, it's very rare that someone will be like, oh, that film was edited so badly. But you can tell because like either a scene lands and you feel it. I mean, of course, it has to do with writing and directing and performances. There's so much that goes into it. But if it's edited well, like it will be really tight and, you know, and those emotional beats will be landing and it'll have a real impact. And if it's and if it's done in a way that's a bit more arbitrary and there's no real strategy or concept behind the way that you're cutting, then you know, then oftentimes like the, the scene will just fall flat and the viewer won't be able to identify what those really important beats of the scene are and that all just becomes sort of like modge podge mush, you know? So it's really about like understanding what the story is, but also, you know, like as an editor, I will look at a scene and break it down and just figure out well whose scene is this, whose perspective is it from, who do we want to be with? You know, how do you want to experience this scene? what is the reveal of the scene like there might be you know some it could be something super small but there there could be something within the scene that that might make the scene more interesting if we don't see that until much later into it or there's just millions of different little visual things that you can do to actually make it really engaging do you have any examples of like when you were editing something like your own or like someone else's that like this kind of came up i mean it comes up every single day in some capacity um, I'm trying to think of like a drastic example of, of major, you know, I mean, in my films, I can tell you that oftentimes, you know, I would, I would like move scenes around or, or there would be a scene that was supposed to be at the end and you push it to the beginning and then, oh, it raises the stakes and makes everything much clearer. Like those are sort of simple things, but all the time I'm cutting dialogue and then having to cut around that. One time, oh, this is kind of a good one. This, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but there was one instance where um, I had written a script and um, produced it and edited it, but someone else directed it, and thankfully the film turned out great. I was really, really happy with it. But um, there were two identical twins in the film, and one of them was a better actor than the other one. And so it became this thing of you know having to cut between these two boys, and then I would also I would actually like slip lines of dialogue and use sometimes like the other kid's performance if they would say a similar line or something, and I would actually sort of use this, the, the fact that I had identical twins to my advantage and if one of them had a better facial expression I would use that as a close-up and pretend it was the other kid kind of thing. And then it went to some film festival and won um, best breakout performance for these kids. And I felt like I was very proud of that. I felt like that was an editing award and I was very proud of it. <laughs> That's great. So how do you cope with all this footage and like seeing it over and over again? Because I know like I, I enjoy editing, but when I have to see the same scene over and over again, I become so jaded. I don't want to look at it anymore. How do you deal with totally. that? Well, what's even harder than that is um, like staying fresh, you know, and like when you've cut a scene 15 different ways and it's still, you're still not getting exactly what you want or, you know, trying to sort of discern between versions and be like, oh, okay, well, this one did this well and this one did this well and why is this one not landing and trying to cobble together something that, that works the best. You know, and so it's really difficult sometimes when you've been in it for such a long time. There was a feature that I edited. Um, we were working on it for like eight months. So by the end of it, it was just impossible to tell like what was working and what wasn't. And that's a big problem. 
And so, um, you know, we would have rough cut screenings where we'd constantly be getting sort of like fresh eyes and fresh advice and different people's thoughts. But then we also would make a point to take time away from the film and, you know, just sort of like sit on those notes and come to it with fresh eyes ourselves so that when we get back into it and start digging in and like tinkering around that we're not, you know, that, that, we're, that we have some sense of what's working again. I think that's, that's really the hardest part. I don't get overwhelmed by the amount of footage. I actually don't mind sifting through footage. I actually really enjoy it and like finding these little moments, especially the unplanned moments or the moments that even the director is totally unaware of because it's just like a subtle little thing that happened and they might have been looking the other way or who the hell knows what. But you know, there's all these like really beautiful, amazing moments that you can find, especially before they call action or after they call cut. Like there's just like all these really like unprompted, natural human behavior type stuff that's fun to, to work with. But, um, but yeah, the problem is more when you've been living with this footage for such a long time and, and watching the same scene over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and just trying to figure out like, how do I break it? How do I make it actually work? Sometimes it's like, oh, okay, like, you know, the writing of this scene is one thing and then the performances and everything about it is saying something drastically different. And so like, to, to have to go in there and try to play against against the performances are, is a really hard thing. And so sometimes it's really looking at what you have and the performances that you got and tossing the script aside and being like, okay, like how can we from what we have from like these very naturalistic moments that we have, like how can we build something that works for the story instead of like, instead of going against the grain and you know just working with the script, but then you have these performances that don't actually um, help that or don't actually support that in any way. So it's also like having a little bit of freedom to sort of look at things and try to think outside of the box and figure out like maybe there's just a completely different way I should be thinking about all of it. And then sometimes the director's like, hell's no. And then sometimes the director's like, you're a genius. You know, it really, it really depends. And sometimes I'm not a genius and sometimes I get to be, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it really is just sort of, it depends on, on the story and on the director and on like the footage that they actually captured versus what they were hoping to capture kind of thing. So obviously editing, it's not just like splicing film together. In the post-production process, there's like uh, sound and color and music. How involved are you in all that when you're an editor? It totally depends on the project. Um, you know, like when I worked in TV, I was not involved at all. You just sort of, you know, you do your outputs and you send it away and then they take care of all of it. And then I would see it on TV and be like, oh, that was, <laughs> oh, that mix wasn't as good. Sometimes you'll get to do like a pass or you'll get to give notes or whatnot, but it was really sort of hands off. But, um, you know, for, for some of the bigger projects that I've cut, I've been super involved in that process. And because it does, it can make the film, especially, you know, with the composing or whatnot, and um, yeah, and even even just sound mixing and sound effects, that, that could make such a huge difference. Like, if the sound effects are super, super saturated and loud, it, it could make for a film that feels a lot less naturalistic, and so like, yeah, it is really nice when I have the opportunity to be involved in that way. It's also nice that I don't have to, you know, be sort of okaying every single decision, but that I can sort of look at a finished thing and be like, oh yeah, the, that color pass looks great but isn't this way more saturated than we were originally thinking kind of thing and just sort of throw in my two cents, but I don't have to be micromanaging about it either. I get to sort of be distanced and yeah, hopefully get to have some opinion. So you were saying that like being an editor has helped you to be a better director. Tell me more about that. How is editing helping you being a better director? Yeah, I think so many ways and so many ways, I mean, um, for instance, this last, I mean, it's helped me in very specific ways just in being able to look at dailies and see how different directors work with different actors and see 
what different adjustments do. When I was working on Transparent last season, it was so great because Jill Soloway, the creator, she would she doesn't cut that often. Like her takes would actually be extremely long, and she would go up and she would direct the actors while the DP was still rolling. So for me, it was amazing because it was like being a fly on the wall in that set. I got to you know see what those adjustments were and then see how they actually affected the performance. That's really rare. That doesn't happen very often. Usually, it's more just sort of on a craft level. Like you know when I'm putting together and assembling something. And looking at a scene and just being like, oh, well, you know, this could have been an interesting choice if we just did stay on the protagonist in a close-up for this entire scene, and yet the director didn't get a close-up of the protagonist in that scene, or, or just sort of, you know, figuring out, like, as a director, I'm always thinking about, like, subjective shots versus objective shots. And as an editor, really getting to see that, like getting to, you know, getting to obviously work on so many more projects as an editor than I'll ever get to work on as a director. So it's sort of like, you know, being able to have that experience of sifting through all different kinds of footage, getting a sense of like of how one builds a shot list or what's missing or what's possible even. And that's been something that's been really interesting too is is um, in working with other directors, you know, these directors are doing things that I would never imagine or conceive of doing, telling different stories obviously, but the way that they visualize is sometimes really different too. So that's been really interesting to just be like, oh yeah, I would never have thought of like CGI, or I would never have thought of like you know incorporating a special effect to do this. And so seeing what's possible on that end of it, when I don't think I ever even would have considered that if I hadn't worked with different directors who do that kind of thing. Not that I've ever actually used it, but but now I know it's possible that I could. Um, but mostly it's just it's just um, often you know I'll see like wow. This was such a simple scene, and the director had eight different setups to do that. And so this scene might have taken like three quarters of a day when it could have taken like a couple of hours. And as an editor, being able to really figure out, okay, well, this is what we need versus this is great to have, but it's just coverage that we probably will never use. Like we'll probably never use that insert because this that was not an important detail, or you know, whatever it might be. But really, just sort of like honing always on like what's essential versus what's versus what's just sort of excessive. Great. When you are coming up with a project, do you think about how it's going to be all edited at the end? Do you think about like cool like editing tricks you can use? I don't know that I usually think about editing tricks, but I do think a lot about um, like the style of the filmmaking. And, and so I, I'm working on these two features right now. I'm trying to raise money for both of them. And they're both extremely different styles. So I know that they will like look very different, but they'll also be edited very differently. And interestingly enough, I want to use like long takes for both of them. But one is a bit more sort of like polished and like, um, yeah, it's got a real sheen to it. And the other is a bit more like neo-neorealism. And so it's like all going to be like handheld and a bit grittier. And so I feel like with editing, it's, yeah, like I feel like I do tend to study the types of movies that I want to be making and how they cut, how often they cut. Like for me personally, I always try my hardest to cut less, like to try to, you know, I don't want to be super, super cutty, but then I'll find myself on a job like this last job that I was on and I was cutting way too slow. Like I could tell that the aesthetic for the show was super, super fast paced cutting. And I knew that for me, it's a bad sensibility to, to like indulge in, you know what I mean? Because I feel like my tendency is to cut too much, so I don't want a job that's going to make me cut a whole lot more. I want a job that's going to like force me to, to be a bit more, you know, that's going to force me against my comfort level and like to be a bit more, I don't, I don't know, to let things breathe a little bit because that's, that, those are the movies that I like watching. So I don't know. So that was a really roundabout answer to say that, um, that yeah, like the movies that I tend to really appreciate and the movies that 
I aspire to make are these ones that feel like really behavioral and real and they do have like these longer takes that just feel really lived in and naturalistic and you know where it's not like the cut that ex that's explaining the story at every turn but it's actually really like the blocking and the camera movement and that kind of thing so as an editor I'm very aware of the pacing of it all and how like you know for the films that I am hoping to make very soon that um, that ideally a lot of that will come through in the blocking and in the camera movement as opposed to cutting at every line like in an ideal world it would actually be fewer cuts than I guess on many films why do you think you're like drawn to like these longer takes and these longer cuts is there like an aesthetic thing or is it I think it's um, I mean the shortcut Again, when I watched Mad Max, I just, my mind was blown because I can't even imagine how a movie like that was conceived or edited. And, and I've read about it since that they sort of conceived of it with storyboards. And so before they even had a script, they had storyboards of how they wanted things to look. And then they wrote a script based on that, based on these like huge set pieces that they had sort of designed in these fight sequences or whatnot. And I have so much respect for that. Like, I think that's amazing. But in terms of the movies that compel me in like a very emotional way, I find that it's like when when the cuts are longer, when the material is really breathing, there's like a naturalism there that sometimes you don't necessarily get if it's super fast and super cutty. And that's not across the board, but like a lot of the films that I really like, I've realized I really like them because of the performances. And what I like most about the performances is that you can really feel it. Like you can feel the timing of it. You can feel like the choices that those actors are making. And it's not through the cut. It's not like through cutting away. It's actually by the camera just sort of like living with that actor and like experiencing a moment. So I don't know. There's like when you when you make a film like there's so much manipulation that goes into it. And then of course as a director there's so much there's so much manipulation that's going into it. You're choosing you're choosing everything. You're choosing the color scheme, you're choosing the, you know, how you want those performances to feel. You're choosing the actors, you're choosing all of it. But if you can make that feel like supernaturalistic, then I feel like that's a that's a real feat. And sometimes it's easy in the edit room, I mean, it's not that it's easy to cut around performances. That's like a really super annoying thing to have to do. But you know, like I can see, I can see that when I'm watching things and I see that things are super cutty or it's cutting on every single line of dialogue. It's just like you don't fall into the scene as easily, and um, it's jarring. And I don't know. There's just something that I really like about like letting a story wash over you and sort of like, yeah, having the space to just sort of like let it breathe. Cool. So. You work as an editor. That's like your job. It's, you can support yourself, that's my day right? Job, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do people like find you to edit? Do you like go out and like apply to every editing job on Craigslist? Do people come to you? How does that happen? It's it's a really interesting question. I mean, it's been um, so. I just moved to LA about a year and a half ago, and that was a scary thing because I have a lot of friends here. Um, I did. I got my MFA at Columbia in New York and a ton of my friends moved out to, to LA. So it's like I have a really wonderful social network out here, but I didn't know anyone in the post-production world and I had no idea how I was gonna sort of break into that and make connections and whatnot. And um, I feel like since I've landed in LA, I've kind of gotten a little bit good at like networking and meeting people. Um, but more so it's just, it's been in very organic ways. Like through those Columbia people, none of them yet have, you know, they're not showrunners yet. They're not making tons of features yet. Unfortunately, they're not the ones that are hiring me generally on these jobs. But, uh, you know, having them has been really wonderful because they know people and, and so they always recommend me. And then um, there's a film collective. I think I might have mentioned this to you, but I, um, when I first moved out to LA, I started this um, LA chapter of a female directing collective that I was a part of in New York called The Fatales. 
and it's a really, really cool group of women. To be a member of the group, you have to have directed a feature in the past, and, um, and the whole idea is that we're all there to just sort of support each other, and it's peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, it's sort of like, you know, getting a chance to learn from other directors, sharing resources, that kind of thing. And um, it was kind of the smartest thing I did when I moved out to LA because it introduced me to like a whole new world of filmmakers. 100% of the jobs I've gotten have been through word of mouth. I would say 80% of the jobs I've gotten have been through the women in that room who think of me when either they need an editor or they hear of someone who needs an editor. So I get phone calls like pretty much every day with like, you know, and granted they're not always great projects. It'll be like, oh, can you hop on for two days to help with this webisode series or whatnot? But, you know, but sometimes they're very real, amazing projects too. And everyone in that group is working toward making features. So it's, it, that's also been really wonderful to know that like features are on the horizon of people who I really respect, stories that I really love. And, you know, and, and in an ideal world, I would be you know, considered to be editing those films too. And I have been, thankfully. So yeah, so a lot of work has sort of just come out of, I don't know, being open to meeting new people. I remember when I first moved to LA, I, um, I had too much stuff for this apartment and so I went onto eBay and was selling some stuff and one of the things that I sold was like a light meter and the guy um, emailed me and he was just like, hey, you're in LA, I'm in LA too, is it okay if I save shipping cost and meet you at a coffee place and pick up the light meter from you? I was like, great, fine, whatever, sure. So we met and I gave him my light meter and he was like, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit, and it turned out he was an editor too, and so he recommended me for a couple of jobs. It's like it's just funny if you're kind of open to it that you know, especially in LA, like you cross paths with people all the time who are able to introduce you to X, Y, or Z and find you employment. In New York, it was a whole lot harder. In New York, it was, and that was part of the reason I came here. But in New York, it was really limiting because there was so there was there there just wasn't a lot of production happening, and um, yeah, and so I was doing a lot of work that was just not super creatively fulfilling. So part of the reason I moved to LA was like, okay, I really want to be a director, um, and hopefully I will be able to make a successful career out of directing one day, but until that happens, I love editing too, so how can I make this like creatively fulfilling for myself? And that was sort of like, okay, well then I gotta move out of New York, because there's just not enough work here for me to make that happen. So I did. But it's limit, you know, it's just, it's so small, so it's like the competition is so high. And everything about it is different, like here in, in LA, um, so many of the people that I know are in the union. It's just sort of like a given. You're probably in the union if you're an editor or an assistant editor. And in New York, I didn't know a single soul who was in the union. So it's just like it's a very different, everything about the, the business is very different. Cool. Let's talk about the editing union because I have no idea about yeah, yeah. anything. How do you get involved? Why should you get involved? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. The advice I got when I moved out to LA was that I have to join the union, and um, ideally, as an editor, what I would love to do is edit scripted TV. The one thing I didn't want to do was come to LA and, and work in reality, because I knew that I wouldn't like it that much, and I knew that, and I feel like, yeah, I don't know, again, like moving out to LA was, the hope was that I could find creatively fulfilling editing work, and for me, reality TV wasn't really it. So, um, so knowing that, um, I knew that eventually if I wanted to ever work in scripted TV then you have to join the union because those are all sort of union shows. Whereas if you're, gonna, if you're, if you're okay editing reality then you don't necessarily have to join the union because a lot of those shows are actually non-union. So it's sort of, you kind of have to sit with yourself and decide like what do you want your trajectory to look like. Those reality editing jobs pay a lot of money. You know, so it's sort of like okay well I can do that, I don't have to join the union, I don't have to pay these dues or whatnot. Or, you know, if I really want to break into scripted anything, most of them, or at least if it's a budget over $1.5 million, let's say, like it tends to be union. 
So um, it just seemed really limiting if I didn't do that. I didn't really know how I was going to go about finding work. So the first piece of advice I got when I moved out here, I knew one editor um, who happened to edit one of my favorite films, and I was connected to her through a, a producer, one of the producers on my films. Um, so anyway, so this editor is, she edited High Art, which is one of the movies that made me want to be a filmmaker. She also happens to be from Tucson, which is where I'm from, and she happens to be a lesbian, which I am as well. So we met up and like we had such a nice time and she was so great and then she got hired on Transparent and she brought me on as her assistant. And her advice to me basically the second I moved to LA was like, yeah, you really, if you want to get into scripted, you're, you're going to have to join the union and you're going to have to work your way up because, because basically what she said to me, and it's unfortunately really true, is that like all of the work that I did in New York in terms of like the docs that I edited, the commercials, the indies, it doesn't mean a ton in the studio world. Like They just really don't care that much. So if I wanted to edit within that world, I was going to have to start at the bottom and kind of work my way up again. So that's sort of, yeah. So, so for me, knowing that I want to work in scripted, it was essential. It was not really a choice. How's your experiences been in the union? Good, bad, indifferent? I mean, thus far, they've been amazing. Really, the only union show I've done is Transparent. And um, it was amazing because, you know, they really protect you. You've got health insurance, which is great. But beyond that, I was working so many hours and any other job that I would have had would have just been like, oh, I have my flat week rate and that's the end of it. Whereas because I was in the union, I, I think I, you know, at the end of the day, if I sort of look at my paycheck and what I got for that series versus what I was expecting to get when I started that job, I think it was twice as much because of all the overtime work that you do. So, so it's like if you're working 12 hours, you get paid, um, you know, time and a half. If you're working a sixth day, you get paid time. If you're working a seventh day, you get paid like two times. It's like it, it actually works out very well. It's a very good, you know, for the worker bee, it's like a really wonderful thing. And they're always great because they answer all your questions and you know and it seems like some of the other unions are super super expensive to join whereas the editing union is pretty reasonable i think for me it's like eight hundred dollars a year or something like that and considering all the perks that you get it it's it's worth it for sure cool let's go back a little bit you were talking about the film fatales tell me more about that that seems really awesome because obviously as a woman filmmaker awesome. i care about that stuff yeah. what do you guys do how did it get started as far as you know yeah so um so the film fatal started about three years ago in new york started by a good friend of mine named leah who had been working for years to get the funding for her movie and she decided one day she was like you know what i'm gonna have a dinner party and i'm gonna invite some of these directors that i know who have made features before and know what to do and maybe I can get some advice from them. And so she invited like six directors to her house and they had a really great conversation and she asked them all of, their, all of her questions and they were you know, really lovely and really generous with their responses. And at the end of it, someone said like, oh, why don't we do this again next month at my house? And so that was sort of how it started. And that's really what it is. It's like a rotating dinner party in different Fatal's homes. So the first Monday of every month, we have our gatherings. And um, well, I should say so, I, I joined the Fatals a few months after it started in New York and it was really incredible for me because I had just graduated from film school and so film school is like its own amazing wonderful community but once you graduate you're just like holy shit like what do I do now um, you know it's really hard to sort of yeah just know what the next step is and so for me it was really wonderful having this group just because I could every month I would talk about the projects that I'm working on and it was sort of like I was being held accountable a little bit just because there were other people that I was speaking to like just because you know if I came back next month people were gonna ask me how that project was going and that was good that was good for me to just have people like be invested in, in what I'm doing so um, so yeah so I started going every month when I was back in New York and then when I moved to LA I 
realized how much I missed it and was just like, oh my goodness, like this was actually something that had become like a really significant part of my life. And so I decided to start it out here. And um, it was crazy because the first month, and again, like I was new to LA, I didn't know anyone. The criteria for being in the group is that you have to have made a feature, which means that a lot of the people in my own network through Columbia or whatnot actually didn't fit that criteria and couldn't join. At that point, now we've sort of expanded, but, but in the beginning it was, um, it was you had to have made a feature. And so, so yeah, I really had to sort of like go outside of the people that I knew. And the very first Fatales um, gathering happened here. There were four people. The core of the Fatales is that once a month, um, the first Monday of every month, we have these gatherings. And um, it, it'll be in the home of one of the Fatales. And really, it's only open to 20 or 25 people. So you have to RSVP. And you know, a lot of people will get like waitlisted. They'll get in the next month. It's like a rotating group of women. And um, the idea is that, like, yeah, we're really just there to like support one another. So the meeting starts, and we kind of explain a little bit about who we are and what we do. And then we go around the room, and everyone introduces themselves and just says um, a little bit about a project that they're working on now. But also, we'll just talk about um, you have to say one positive thing that's happened in the last 30 days. And it could be film related, or it could just be like life related. And so we go around the room, and we get to know each other a little bit that way. And then um, whoever's hosting that night gets to pick a topic of conversation. And they're all like craft-related directing conversations. So we had a gathering last night, and the topic of conversation was how do you envision your shot list, or how do you go about creating a shot list? And yeah, it was like just a very nuts and bolts conversation of people talking about like whether or not they storyboard, whether or not they use floor plans, whether or not they create their very first pass at a shot list by themselves or with a DP, like just, just the nitty gritty. Um, my other half, I run it with a woman named Shaz Bennett, who is amazing. She's the one that did that feature that I'm helping her work on or whatever. And she kind of describes it like the magic castle, which is like, okay, we all get in a room and then we all just like share directing secrets. Like I've never had the opportunity to like blow up a house, but one of the women in our group has. So if tomorrow I'm directing a film where I have to do that, like I know that I can ask her like, well, what, what did that look like? How did you do that? You know, how can I do that? What's the best way to make that happen kind of thing. So it's, so it's very much like technical conversations. And, um, and then at the end, after the, after the discussion topic, then we go around the room and you just basically say um, something that you need. And it could be something that you need like very tangibly, like, oh, I'm looking for a casting director. Or it could be something that you need like spiritually, like, oh, can you send good vibes my way because I'm trying to write a first draft and it's not going well. You know, it could be really anything. And then after that, we all just like drink and hang out. And if I know a casting director and you've asked for one, I could go over to you and find you and we could talk about casting directors. So it's like all just like a very organic way for us to sort of like, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities for directors to hang out in the same room because we're all on, you know, our respective sets. So even just to like, it's kind of empowering to be in a room with other directors who are somehow making it happen despite all the statistics and, you know, supporting one another. And, and now it's been a year and a half and we have about 450 members. And so it's like grown astronomically. A lot of that is because Leah is so amazing at just getting amazing press. And so people really like have started to hear about us. So now it's becoming like people will contact me all the time and say that they want to join, which is great. And then in addition to the monthly gatherings, because we've been growing so fast and so quickly, um, now we're doing all kinds of different programs. So for instance, we have like writers groups or tomorrow we're having a diversity panel where Film Independent is coming, and Fox is coming, and NBC, and Sony, and they're all just going to talk about their different diversity programs. And then we're going to have Fatales on that panel, too, who have done all of those programs to answer questions. 
And then this Sunday, we're having an event for female directors and female crew. And the idea is that fatales are encouraged to like bring one or two um, people within their personal network, female crew members, um, to bring to this party so that the rest of us can meet them. And then the idea is really that, you know, then we're just sort of trying to hire more women on our different productions and, you know, just networking and getting to know different people. So it's all kinds of things. We'll have, you know, we'll have panels about TV writing or we'll have panels about, I mean, really just, just anything. And, um, yeah, and all kinds of different mixers and events. And it's really just about, like, yeah, just showing LA that, like, there are a lot of female directors who are making really good work. And the fact that you don't know us is, like, that's what that's our job is like to really sort of get our names out there and, and let let them know that we exist. That's another thing that we've actually been doing quite a bit of is like festival outreach. So we'll do, um, for instance, at the LA Film Festival this last month, we had a meetup with them where we had a little party that they sponsored. They were screening six Fatales films, so in celebration of those films, and then um, you know we we have like we've compiled all these lists of all of the different Fatales features and shorts that are on the festival circuit now. So we'll call like South by Southwest and say, here's all these great films. Do you want to do, you know, a night of Fatal's shorts? And they'll, they might say yes, or they might say not so much. But we'd love to do a panel with you. And we did. We did a panel at South by Southwest this year and at Sundance. And so there's a lot of just sort of like festival outreach, trying to get festivals aware of the fact that we're out here, we're making movies, and you should be watching them and programming them. So yeah, and then in addition to that, we've just been doing so much. And the idea of the Fatales is that it's a collective. So if there's a woman in the group who has an idea, then amazing, like make it happen, go with it. Um, for instance, we have like one woman who wants to do, in an ideal world, she wants to take photographs of every Fatale in the world and, um, you know, and do it medium format or whatnot and get them framed and actually like have a gallery show somewhere. So she's looking at getting funding for, you know, to rent the camera, getting funding to, um, you know, for the film, for the travel of going to all these different places to shoot all these different fatales and trying to get a gallery space that would be interested in working with us so that we could exhibit the work. But, um, you know, so this collective started in New York about three years ago and now it's in 20 cities around the world. And, and it's just awesome. Like it's, it's also, it's like a secret code word because I went to, I didn't go to Sundance this last year, but I went the year before. And there were maybe um, four, there, uh, there, were, there were not that many films that were directed by women. And of the films that were directed by women, 100% of them were fatales. And so it was awesome because I would go to those films and at the end of the film I would, you know, go down to the filmmaker and be like, oh, you know, we haven't crossed paths at a gathering, but like I'm a fatale too. And they'd be like, oh my God, you are too. So it was like, it was almost like the secret club of just like goodwill. Another thing that we do is like field trips for different fatales who either are premiering their films at festivals or who are, you know, getting their films released in LA or whatnot. And we'll bring like a bunch of fatales to actually go and support it, support opening night type thing. And yeah. It's really just like a, it's like a support network for women who are trying to do this impossible thing. So yeah, yeah. and learning from each other, you know what I mean? That's another really cool thing, because it's like um, there are directors in our group who work you know, extensively in television, and like if you want to shadow a director or whatnot, I, I know people then that I could actually reach out to and just ask them. And, and so it's like, it's not a networking group per se, but it's, it's really more about just like figuring out the ways it's more about just like creating organic relationships, you know what I mean? And like, and thankfully there are a lot of really successful um, and giving generous people in that group who are willing to share like wisdom and experience and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's what it's about. That's great. Um, obviously it's all women. Do you all think women. it's important that women support each other in this way or is this really necessary? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's truly the only way anything's gonna change because 
you know, you look at, first of all, you look at the statistics and they're horrifying. And then you look at the system and, you know, there are so many, there, there are so many powerful women in positions of power where they could, if they chose, um, they could help women. They could, they could choose more female directors. They, they're in a position where they could actually make change, but they're afraid to, for whatever reason. They're afraid that, oh, if they put their support behind a woman and then she does badly, or, oh, they had a female director on a season last year and she actually didn't, you know, they, they weren't as crazy about her work. So if an executive puts her name on the line for another female this season, like, what if that doesn't go well? Then her job is on the line. So there's like a lot of fear, I think, around, um, you know, Women in positions of power su supporting other women, like, and and unfortunately, that's that's where it has to that's where it has to happen. Otherwise, we're not really gonna gonna get anywhere. And it's sort of like just this idea of being very vocal, and um, you know, me knowing that like I've had I don't know 20 friends this year have films that were released. That's amazing. That's incredible. And I know personally, I'm responsible for getting like many seats and you know many butts in those seats so that the screenings sell out or whatever it is. And like, I feel like without that kind of support, I don't know, it just, the, the, these films, like they're made and then poof, they're gone because no one ever hears of them again. And, and it's all through word of mouth. And like, this is, this is the one thing that we can do is like create a strong network so that, you know, we're supporting other women. And it allows for us to be able to direct our films. You know, it's like the rising tide raises all the ships. That's sort of the idea of Fatales is like, okay, like you're in this room with all these really wonderful directors, try to get from that what you can in terms of like, you know, education, in terms of just asking your questions. And then uh, the hope is that, you know, then, then we're all better for it. And I feel like that's, yeah, that's sort of, that's, that's sort of the feeling of Fatales in general is, um, yeah, like we're not competing against each other actually. We need to change the system so that there's, there's more room for all of us. So to kind of wrap up, do you have any advice for young filmmakers who are just getting out of film school or people who are just starting out in the industry, what's your advice to those people? My advice would be to just keep making work. I mean, I'm in a position now where I've been waiting years um, for the money to actually make. I made a doc feature a number of years ago, and ever since I've really been struggling to make a narrative feature, and it's been really, really difficult to get that money. And part of it is, you know, that I, I'm working with these writers who have written these stories that I am obsessed with. I love so much, and I can't wait to see on screen. But they're, you know, the $500,000 budget or $700,000 budget, or you know, just an amount of money that I'm not personally capable of going out and raising myself. And to be honest, it's been like the first time I've ever really felt any sort of sexism at all. It's like asking for money and realizing that, you know, people are really, really reluctant to give money away to anyone, much less female directors, like there's a, there's a lack of trust or whatnot. And so um, anyway, that was a tangent. My advice to, to filmmakers would be, despite this fact that like most of your filmmaking career is really like sitting on your hands waiting for money and hoping that someone's gonna give you permission to make your movie, that's all fine and good as long as you're doing other stuff on the side. Because like if you're just waiting for permission, then it's unlikely that that's ever gonna happen. So even while I've been sitting here waiting and waiting and waiting and you know doing the LA thing of ooh getting a, an agency to package the film and ooh getting like a, a you know great name producer on board and ooh getting you know name talent and all of these things which are happening, but very slowly. In addition to that, like just to be like oh okay well I have my 5D I could make a music video this weekend or oh I have my 5D I could make a sketch or I could make this stupid thing that you know I could post on YouTube if it's terrible no one ever has to see it and if it's great maybe it'll go viral who knows. But um, it's funny because my best friend from film school um, is this guy named Sean Wines, and he's super talented. He's amazingly talented. He's so funny, and he's just he's just great. Um, but his thesis film at Columbia, 
was like wildly successful. It played at a million film festivals and it won the Student Academy Award and it was it was so good and so funny. It was really wonderful, but it didn't really get him anywhere. And then um, a year later we were talking and he was kind of like bummed about something and I was like, oh, you should write, write something. We'll make a, a little film this weekend or whatever. Take your mind off of your troubles. So he did, he wrote a little sketch thing and I produced it and we made it for like a hundred bucks and we didn't get permits or anything. It was like two nights, we, we shot for like two hours on like the streets of New York, it was fine. And, um, and then he took like a million years to edit this thing and then eventually he uploaded it. He didn't even tell me that he uploaded it. He just like whatever, he did it. And then I got an email the next day from my uncle, like my very conservative uncle in Arizona, who was like, Brooke, I saw that film that you made. It was really funny, I liked it. I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, the film, there was a J-Date reference in the film. He's like, yeah, that J-Date film. I was like, I have no concept. I have no idea what you're talking about. So then he sends me this link, and sure enough, Sean had posted it like 12 hours earlier, but it went like viral overnight. And you know, it was on like Tosh.0. And anyway, it was this stupid little film that we made for a hundred bucks, you know, in the middle of the night one night, because we were bored and Sean was sad. And that was the movie that got Sean all of his agents, all of his managers, all of his lawyers. He was able to sell a pitch from that short as a pilot. And that was like the beginning of his whole career was this stupid little thing that he made, which was like 0.001% of the budget of his thesis film that won the Student Academy Award that got him nowhere. So it's like, it was just like a real lesson in, oh yeah, like it really doesn't matter how much money you have. Like it's, you know, with the cameras that we have now, like with my 5D, things look pretty good. You know, like it really is, it's very easy to sort of go out and make, a, make something that looks relatively decent but, um, but yeah, you just gotta keep making it because you really don't know, like, you don't know what's gonna resonate. You, like, Sean didn't know when he wrote this little piece that that was gonna be the thing that was gonna launch his career. Like, it was, it was just a fun thing that we did one night, you know? So my advice would definitely be, despite all the obstacles, we still have the bare necessities that we need to actually go out and keep making work. And if you're gonna be a director or a writer or anything, like, you just need to keep making work. Thank you so much, Brooke, for taking the time to talk with me and for leading the charge on gender equality in film. If you want to check out links and pictures, go to the official Poor Autors Facebook page. You can also subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Poor Autors was created by me, Laura Brinkat. Our music composers, Nick Angeloni, our sound mixing supervisors, Michaela Kane, and our graphics designer is Jamie Kaplan. Next week on Poor Art Tours, it's actually the last episode! I talked to Nicholas Jacobson Larson about creating the cinematic score for a film, which I actually know nothing about. It'll be great! Tune in next week. <laughs>